Good morning. Good to see you and uh, good of us to be here together to consider God's word uh, and think about um, its impact uh, on our hearts and our lives. So uh, I'm going to pray and ask for God to help us uh, as we uh, do that together. Father, we thank you for a beautiful day that you've blessed us with. Um, We thank you for uh, the beauty of your word. Thank you for the way uh, that it teaches us, for the way that you reveal to us what you are like, uh, what you want us to be like, uh, and the beauty of your salvation for us in Jesus. Uh, We pray that we'd appreciate that uh, afresh this morning, uh, and we'd think carefully about what that means uh, for how we each live our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now, I'm wondering if anyone can tell me who this guy is. You you have to be of a certain age. Anyone? What was that? The dollar man. Well, his name technically is is Dollar Bill. And um, I'll tell you why why Dollar Bill was invented. Well, in fact, I'll let him tell you. the pounds and the shillings and the pence. Be prepared, folks, when the coins begin to mix on the 14th of February, 1966. Who are you? I'm Dollar Bill, and I've come to tell everyone that decimal currency will be here from the 14th of February, 1966. Advertising's come a a little way since then. Uh, so Dollar Bill was there to help introduce Australia to the concept of decimal currency. Um, and I guess we're kind of all used to it now, but at the time, uh, this was quite an intimidating change for most people. Um, if you'd spent your entire life thinking in pounds and shilling and pence, it's not an easy thing to shift over to a totally new way of counting and a new way of valuing things. Um, I can even remember struggling when car speedos changed from miles per hour to kilometres per hour. Um, I was only a kid at the time, but it still took a few years for my brain to catch up. Now, I think most of us are now used to dollars and cents and decimal systems, but there are some things that uh, I think the metric system still struggles to take hold. Um, I don't know about you, but I still think of a person's height in terms of feet and inches rather than in centimetres. To say someone is 183 centimetres tall, it just doesn't mean the same as saying someone's six foot tall. It can be a hard thing to get our head around those sorts of changes when our way of thinking has become so ingrained. Uh, Now, I I bring that up because I think the events that we see unfolding in the book of Acts and and during the early part of the church and what we're looking at here in Acts 15 um, is talking about a, a dilemma that presented a similar issue, a similar struggle, particularly for the Jewish Christians of the time. A massive change has taken place in terms of what God's people now look like. It's a decimal currency level of change. And there's a group of people who are struggling to cope with that. For thousands of years, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, have had this exclusive claim on being the people of God. And now these Gentiles, or the non-Jews, are flooding into this new church, calling Jesus Saviour and Lord, and some of the Jewish believers just don't quite know what to do with them. Uh, 
And more than just confusion, this issue in fact has the potential to divide the church, to split it right down the middle along these ethnic and traditional lines. So what's the issue? Well, in a word, circumcision. Uh, now, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, last week, we saw Paul and Barnabas go out on their first missionary trip, their first tour with the gospel. Uh, and as they went, uh, they noticed in particular that the Gentiles were responding with great enthusiasm to the news about Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas returned to the, the church that had sent them, Antioch, and they report what happened and everyone's encouraged about uh, what God is doing in the world and everything seems to be going well until some visitors come from out of town and visit the city of Antioch. Uh, and we read about the problem right at the beginning there of chapter 15. It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Um, similar point gets made in verse 5. It says, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So here's the problem. Um, these Jewish teachers have come into town and started telling the Gentile Christians that trusting in Jesus is lovely, but you also need to get circumcised and you need to start keeping all of the laws from the Old Testament, the law of Moses. In fact, they're saying that unless they do this, they can't actually be saved. Now, not surprisingly, uh, Paul and Barnabas fire up at this point, and we read that there is, there's a sharp dispute between them. So what they decide to do is to send Paul and Barnabas and a little delegation down to Jerusalem to try and sort this issue out. It's kind of like they're off to Canberra to get a ruling from the High Court or, or heading off to head office. Um, now, we might think it's pretty obvious what the outcome of all of this should be, but we really should try and appreciate just what a difficult thing it was for the Jews to get their heads around this change that had taken place. Um, as I said, it's like going from shillings to cents. It's a big change and in fact it's such a difficult thing for them to get their heads around. It's an issue that keeps cropping up throughout the life of the early church. It's probably the biggest source of conflict and confusion that we see take place in the early days of the church. Nearly all the letters that we've got in the New Testament touch on this issue uh, to greater or lesser degrees. These two issues in particular, the issue of circumcision and the keeping of the law of Moses, they were the two big identity markers for the Jewish people. Uh, that, that marked them out as the people of God. They were the ones descended from Abraham. They were the ones got rescued from Egypt. They were the ones that had received all the promises from God. They were the ones that had received the law from God and kept it diligently. And so it's no small thing for them, while yes, they'd come to see Jesus as their Messiah, but to be a part of this new thing that's now full of all of these Gentiles. Um, some of the Jews obviously thought the best solution to this problem was to get the Gentiles to effectively become Jewish first, to, to take on the law, to get circumcised like they were. And this is what Paul and Barnabas get sent to Jerusalem to nut out. So when they arrive there, uh, the leaders in the church, the apostles and the elders, they call this, this big council, this meeting, to try and sort this out. Uh, and in verse 7 we read that after a lot of discussion has taken place, the apostle Peter takes the floor. 
Uh, and what he says is, I think, well, not only clever, uh, but it really does settle the argument. Um, have a look from verse 7, because uh, this is worth reading again. It says, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now, Peter here is reminding them of um, an event that took place a few years earlier when God sent Peter to the home of a man named Cornelius. Uh, you can read about that in Acts uh, chapters 10 and 11. Um, now, Peter himself took a bit of convincing to go, if you remember the story. Uh, three times God had to give him this vision of a tablecloth being lowered down with all the animals that weren't kosher. Um, eventually, he, he relents, he goes and he visits Cornelius. He shares the gospel with him and he sees Cornelius and his whole household respond in faith. And he also sees God pour out his Holy Spirit on them. Peter couldn't deny then that God was opening up the way of salvation to the Gentiles too and that none of that had anything to do with the Jewish law. And so Peter makes this point here that, that this was all God's doing. In verse 7 he talks about God making a choice. Um, he talks about God accepting the Gentiles making no distinction between us and them. And so Peter concludes that if God clearly isn't insisting on circumcision or law-keeping to include the Gentiles into his people, to give them the spirit of God and save them, then who were they to impose those things on the Gentile believers? In the end, they all needed to appreciate that they and we and anyone is only ever saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul and Barnabas that get, get invited to share what they've been up to as they've travelled around and uh, shared the good news of the gospel with the Gentiles up in the Turkey area, the trip we saw last week. Um, and then finally James, who's uh, the brother of Jesus, he speaks. It seems like he's become a leading figure in the church at Jerusalem. Um, and in his little speech, he adds to what Peter says by quoting from the book of Amos. Um, and his, re his point really is to explain that God has long planned for this to take place. God's in fact um, hinted for some time that there'll become a time when the Gentiles will be included into the people of God. So the point of all of that is that the gen this, this uh, development with the Gentiles coming to faith, it's not something they should grudgingly accept. Um, this is all a part of God's plan. It's, it's exactly what God wants and it's unfolding just as God has intended. And so the decision gets made. They're not going to burden the Gentiles with the law or with circumcision. The Gentiles, they declare, are acceptable to God through faith in Jesus. They draw up a letter to say this. They send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch uh, to deliver that news. And when it's delivered, the church is understandably pretty happy to hear that, especially the Gentiles. Uh, turns out they don't need to get circumcised after all. That would be a relief. But at this point, I do want you to spare a thought for those Gentiles that may have already taken the plunge, 
that they got persuaded that this was something they needed to do and now they're being told, sorry, uh, you don't actually need to do that. But we are off the topic. Now, in some ways that could kind of be the end of the matter, you could draw a line under it. But it is interesting that even though they tell them that they don't need to keep the law or get circumcised, in the letter that they send back, they do tell the Gentiles that they need to do four things. Um, it crops up a couple of times. In James's speech, he mentions it, and it shows up in the letter that they send back with Paul and Barnabas. Um, and here they are. It's in verse... Uh, oh, I think this is actually verse 29. The letter says that uh, the Gentiles are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So you do well to avoid these things. Why these four things? Um, in a way, I think it's a bit difficult to work out. Um, three of them are related to, to food, uh, and the other is about sexual practices. I think there's a couple of possible explanations for why they're asking them to do these four particular things. They certainly have an association with um, the pagan lifestyle that the Gentiles would have come from, and particularly their religious practices. And so it's possible that the Jewish believers are simply wanting to warn the Gentiles about the need to distance themselves from their old way of life. To so say, you, you belong to Jesus now, you can't have anything to do with these, these old practices from your old way of life. But the other, and I think the probably more likely reason that they bring these four things up is really for the sake of unity and fellowship in the church. Um, the laws, these four things that they mention, particularly relate to things that would have created friction and tension between the Jew and the Gentile believers. Life in the church back then very much revolved around table fellowship, meals together. Food was, and of course it still is, central to how people relate to one another, uh, and in the church all the more. And so how could the Jews and the Gentiles have this fellowship if they couldn't even share a meal together? And so I think the leaders in Jerusalem are kind of asking the Gentile Christians to, to make a bit of a concession here, to be conscious of Jewish sensitivities, to make some allowances for them. And the idea being that I guess they could express that unity through the fellowship uh, that they could share in, in table fellowship together. Now that's how I make kind of best sense of these rules. Feel free to come and argue with me about it afterwards if you like. Um, but the thing I think we really shouldn't miss in all of this is that the rest of the law isn't here. There are these four things mentioned, but the law as a whole, all of the rest of the laws in the Old Testament are not imposed on the Gentiles. So there's, there's no circumcision, there's no Sabbath. Um, the Gentiles are free from living under the laws of the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, to be fair, our issues are not going to be the same as these issues. Um, I can't really see anyone here wanting to stand up and insist that um, all the Gentiles here get circumcised. Um, I certainly can't see that getting up by a popular vote. It's a, it's a very, you know, it's an issue of its time. It's a very Jew-Gentile thing going on here. But I think there are important lessons for us to learn from all of this. I think one is, uh, there's a lesson here for us in how we go about dealing with disputes and, and arguments within the life of the church. 
For starters, I think it, it shows us that we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. Um, there's always going to be differences of opinion. Some of those things are things that don't matter a great deal, um, but some of them go to the very heart of what we believe and what the gospel is about. But in both instances, it's still important how we deal with it. Now, by and large, I think they did a pretty good job in this case. Um, you know, firstly, the church at Antioch decided to send Paul and Barnabas off to, to get a ruling from the apostles. I think they were conscious of the fact that this issue could divide the church, and so they wanted to be able to uh, proceed together in unity on this issue. And even the way that they debated it in Jerusalem, you know, it seems like they took quite a bit of time, they allowed a lot of different people to speak, put forward their point of view, they listened to one another, it was respectful as far as we can tell. And then the, the leaders brought their wisdom and their common sense to bear, but even more importantly than that, they made it clear that they wanted to be led by God on this. They listened to what God had told Peter and Paul, what God had told them even through his word in the Old Testament, through prophets like Amos. They thought about what God was telling them, even through the act of giving the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. And so they weigh all that up, and they let God and his word be their guide. I think that's a helpful reminder to us uh, that we should be people who seek to take our lead from God. As much as we are able, we should be trying to make our decisions based on what God has made clear to us. Now, interesting, this chapter ends on a rather sad note, but there's a, a story about Paul and Barnabas having an argument and going their separate ways. That takes place right at the end of Acts 15. Um, Paul and Barnabas are all set to go out on another mission trip to retrace their steps and visit the churches that they'd planted in their first trip, but they end up having a nasty argument about Mark, uh, or, or John, as he's sometimes referred to. He's Barnabas's cousin, in fact. Barnabas wants to take him on this trip, uh, but Paul is not keen, because we find out here that um, Mark had actually abandoned them halfway through their first trip. This dispute between them is so serious that they actually split. They decide to go their separate ways. Barnabas uh, heads off with Mark uh, and Paul goes off uh, with a new team. It's a sad story, but it's actually encouraging in some ways too. It's encouraging in one way that um, the Bible that we've got we can have great confidence in because it's not afraid to show us the warts and all in this account of the early life of the church. The people that we're reading about are not perfect people. The church is not a perfect place. Paul and Barnabas were just men. They disagreed, they argued, they split, they separated but they did both get on with serving God. Now, we're not sure how long it took them to, to patch things up, um, but Paul will tell us in his later letters that he still had great trust and respect for both Barnabas and Mark. So at some point it does seem like there was uh, something of a reconciliation. It shouldn't surprise us when we run into conflict in the life of the church. It's, it's not a, inherently a, a good thing, but we're all flawed people. Sometimes we won't speak the way that we should. 
We won't show the love that we should for others. And we'll need to ask for forgiveness. And with God's grace, we should be able to extend that to each other as well. So we shouldn't be surprised when we have arguments. But there is a way to, to have conflict and to argue well, such that it doesn't lead to division. And in all of this, we can see that even in the midst of that, God's mission is not derailed. In fact, you could even argue that God uses this, this dispute between them to multiply the mission. God ends up with two mission teams going out, sharing the gospel, where previously there was one. It's a reminder that even our failings, our, our weaknesses, can't thwart, thwart what God wants to achieve through his church. Now, circumcision may not be our issue, but I think we still need to be careful when it comes to the kind of things we might seek to impose upon either one another or even on ourselves. Perhaps it's our, our traditions, our way of doing things. Um, perhaps it's the impression we sometimes give other people that uh, they really don't belong, that they're kind of a, a second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. You know, perhaps that, that being a real Christian is about doing things according to my tradition or, or my cultural practice. And so I think we need to be careful and always be on the lookout for those sorts of blind spots that we all have. And in that is a lesson for us, I think, to do with our understanding of God's grace. Peter's final line in his speech was that we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And that is as true now as it was then. We're always in danger, I think, of losing sight of what it means to be saved by the grace of God and just what a free gift it is. It's a very human thing to want a list of rules to keep, laws to follow. And even if we say that being a Christian is, is about trusting in Jesus, we need to be careful that we don't, as we so often do, smuggle in a little bit of law-keeping into the mix or perhaps confuse what the purpose of the church is. Christians in the past have often made the mistake of cherry-picking a few laws out of the Old Testament, perhaps like keeping the Sabbath or avoiding certain foods or drinks or sometimes we just go completely off script and ban things like dancing or a certain type of music. And we, we make these laws and we, we impose them on both ourselves sometimes, but also seek to impose them upon our fellow Christians. We try to add these rules to faith in Jesus. And salvation becomes less about grace and more about obedience. Of course we should obey God. But we need to remember where our salvation lies. But it doesn't lie with you and the rules you follow and how well you do that, it only ever lies with the Lord Jesus and what he did for you and for me. So we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as anyone is. God cleanses our hearts through faith in Jesus and that's the only way it happens. Let's never forget that our salvation is a free gift from God. 
Because it's when we forget that that we start trying to add bits onto what Jesus has already finished. Let's be people who rest in the perfect, finished work of Jesus and get on with pointing people to him and him alone. We're going to pray and... Chris is going to lead us in that. Thanks, Chris.